0: had a dream I stepped in it a couple of weeks ago, so I'm going to move it. Good morning. You want to maybe file this under it's never too soon to be talking about events that are coming. Uh, That being the case, I want to bring to your attention something that you're already uh, helping us with, not even knowing all the details, and that is a workshop that's going to uh, happen here at Lehman. First time it's ever happened. Uh, The name of that workshop is Equipped. Hiram and I, not long ago, went to the elders and pitched this idea, and uh, they saw the great value in that. Uh, About 40 folks uh, sifted in and out on Wednesday night to help us to prepare a mailing that's going to go to over 1,200 congregations. There are even more than that, but we are mailing it to that many congregations within about 400 miles of here. It's amazing how much of our nation is that close to Bowling Green. We're in in a great place to uh, host this event. But we're not just inviting others to come. It's not just a brotherhood event. It is, and we'll have sessions for those who are uh, in the the teenage years of life. So we have several youth sessions that are planned uh, for ladies, particular interests for them. ...that are going to occur all throughout the weekend. There's an entire leadership track for those not only who are serving as elders... ...but those who are striving to grow in their leadership in the church. A special segment for those who are preaching the gospel. Uh, Segments for those who are young adults and college students throughout the weekend... Uh, For Bible class teachers, we're going to have a workshop on Sunday uh, afternoon Uh, and uh, for anybody that we miss, we're going to walk through the book of James and there are going to be various subjects that will be of interest to you. Uh, What we're asking you is to consider as some of your jobs are such that you've got to plan out your calendar. We have set the schedule so that it's minimally invasive to your work week. It will begin on Thursday night, April 20th, and it will end on Sunday evening, April 23rd. It could be that if you have to take time off from work or or even from school, it would be one day typically, and that's Friday if you have Saturday off. But we would encourage you as we make our plans to go various places throughout the year, be it vacation uh, or other things that we prioritize, that you be thinking about how this can serve and strengthen this church. Uh, we're going to have folks we anticipate from all over the place who are going to be here and be a part of that. We're bringing in men and women from across the, uh, our brotherhood who are going to excel. The, we have brochures that are available. We have uh, on the website, the schedule. So we want to encourage you to, to, to embrace this as a Lehman activity and something that's a benefit to us. And of course, we're going to continue to give you information to communicate to you. Uh, But we're grateful for the help that's already been done, even not knowing all the specific details about that. We know and love the song, Why Did My Savior Come to Earth? And yet there is no way that in one sermon, not even in one lifetime, that we could adequately answer that question. If we were to try to speak in the negative, we might say there are reasons why Jesus did not come to this earth. When we think about Jesus who is called the Word, He did not come to be a literary genius. He didn't write any books. And yet His disciples heard His masterful teaching and by the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, they wrote uh, words that have transformed civilization for 2,000 years. You know, Jesus did not come to have a wife, even though the Bible tells us that the church is his bride and he is its groom. He never married a woman, and yet women have been so favorably treated in Christianity that in most places where the church is, there are more women than men in those congregations. We think about the fact that Jesus uh, did not come to uh, occupy an office or to lead an army, even though he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yet because of the masterful influence of his words, there have been words of Jesus that have been used in laws and nations since the beginning of time. You know, the prophets tell us that when Jesus would come, the Messiah, that he would be plain and ordinary, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2 And even though he came in such a low-key way, the influence of his life was such that he transformed the way that humanity thought about such basic things as humility and forgiveness and service and even death. But when we think about Jesus, he did not come to be a humanitarian. He did not come to be a social worker. He did not come to be a cultural icon. He did not come to be a superstar or a superhero. On one occasion, Jesus is trying to influence the heart of a simple woman, the very first person that he claimed to be the Messiah in speaking to. It was the Samaritan woman at the well. And she anticipated that the Messiah was coming. And in John chapter 4 and verse 25, she says, I know that that Messiah will come and the one who is called Christ. And when he comes... He will show us all things. She, on that occasion, uses a word. It's a word that's found hundreds of times in the New Testament. It's a word that means to uh, come into a state or a condition. It implies a process. The word means to become. It's a word that's very important when we look at the mission of Jesus. When we think about our question, why did my Savior come to earth? We could go to literally all those hundreds of places, but what a scattered sermon that would be. What I'd like to do is to settle in on the book of Matthew. And for the sake of time, we must be brief, but I want to look at five statements that Matthew records where Jesus either says, I came or I have come. As we look at Jesus this month, we are looking today at his earthly ministry Jesus knew who he was. He knew why he was here. He came with a mission. He came with a purpose. And because he did, he helps us to understand why we're here, what we're supposed to be about, and how we ought to respond to the fact that Jesus has come. And so I want to, as we look at the mission of Jesus, his earthly ministry... I'd like for us to ask the question of that song, Why did my Savior come to earth? And I want us to look into Matthew and see the five answers that he records Jesus giving. They're diverse in one way, they're similar in another. As we look at them, notice with me, Why did my Savior come to earth? Number one, He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus is preaching the greatest sermon ever preached. And he says, uh, uh, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish but fulfill. Do you know that Matthew records Jesus using that word fulfill 16 times in his gospel and it means to make something complete? Jesus came to make something complete. But he came into a religious world, a world already striving to follow God. The Jews had the law of Moses, and so the book of Matthew was primarily aimed at the Jews to let them know that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one who was promised to them. And to establish that purpose, I want you to notice how Jesus often tangled with the established religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees. Later on in his ministry, right before he goes to the cross, in Matthew chapter 23 and verse 2, Jesus tells the people that the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the law of Moses. Therefore, whatsoever they say unto you, that uh, do and observe, but do not do according to their works, because they say and they do not. They bind up heavy burdens and they lay them on men's shoulders, but they will not so much as lift them with a finger. But they do their righteousness to be seen of men. They broaden their phylacteries and they lengthen the tassels of their garments. There in Matthew 23, 2 through 5, Jesus is saying that these individuals were those who had a double standard of righteousness. As they handled the law, the ones who were supposed to be the experts, they said, there's a way that you ought to live, but I don't have to live the way that you're living. They also established their own righteousness. They made it harder to follow God than God did. They set their own rules, and they said, you need to follow what we say is righteousness, and Jesus doesn't like that. Well, you'll also see that they practiced their righteousness to be seen of men. They did the right things, but they knew they had an audience, and so they wanted others to see them. And and that's why the the most important focus in the Sermon on the Mount is a statement that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. He says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus came into a world in which there was a law, and God expected man to follow that law. But they could not do so. That wasn't the fault of the law. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 21, if there was a law that could save it, would be the law of Moses. And yet what we could not do, if we had lived in Jesus' days, and were we Jews, we'd be in the same predicament as everybody else. We could not live it perfectly. But The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 3, and what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God and sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. Paul is telling us something that we see as we look at Jesus' profound statement. He said, look, I'm not against the law. I didn't come to destroy it. I came to make it complete and full. And by my being able to do that, I'm going to open up a benefit that you need that you don't have without me. So that's why we read throughout all the New Testament and we see writers saying he was tempted like all of us are and yet without sin, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. He committed no sin, 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 22. He had no sin, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He was innocent and separated from sinners according to Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 26 and in him is no sin, 1 John chapter 3 and verse 5. And because of that, Jesus could live perfectly the law and he could provide for us what we needed, but we could not provide for ourselves. And it is through his sacrifice and his living a perfect life that in our faith response, we can come to him. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24 through 29. Later on, the Hebrews writer says, Though he, Jesus, were a son, yet learned the obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation to everyone that obeys him. Jesus is saying, I came to fulfill the requirements of the law and the prophets. And because I do and because I will, you will be able to come to God through me. Suppose that there was somebody who came up to you and had the authority and could say, You don't have to pay taxes anymore. You don't have to pay income taxes. You don't have to pay social security taxes. You don't have to pay property taxes. You don't have to pay sales taxes. And that's for as long as you live because I have a provision so that I'm going to pay them in your place. Now, if somebody did that for you, don't don't wait for it, but if they did, how would you feel about that? Would you be at least a little excited about it? And yet that's nothing compared to what Jesus did in fulfilling the law and the prophets. He did for us what we could not do. And through that, he opens up to us a benefit that we need and did not have if he did not come to this earth. As Matthew lays out in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus had to come to this earth, the first reason that he came was so that he could fulfill the law and the prophets. And he says to us, I make it possible for you to have righteousness by my being made righteous. My righteousness makes you righteous by fulfilling the law and the prophets. Why did my Savior come to earth? There's a second answer that's given to us. Jesus said he came to this earth to call sinners. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13, Jesus says again to the religious leaders, Go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice because I came not to call the righteous but sinners. You know, here's the thing that we know. We don't have to live very long before we come face to face with this truth. Yes, Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets perfectly, but I cannot do so. I come face to face with my humanity, my inadequacy, and I realize that I'm gonna stumble and fall. And so Jesus makes a profound statement in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 13 when he says, I came into this world to call sinners and not the righteous. In order to make that statement come home to us, what Jesus does in Matthew chapter 9 is he goes and he has a meal with the who's who of the sinners of his day. And as Jesus is assembled there with them and and that with the audience of the Pharisees and the scribes, I want you to think about those two classes of people that we would call sinners. The first are the tax collectors. And the tax collectors would be sinners in the Pharisees' mind because their business constantly had them exposed to the Gentiles and to the world. And since everything about who they were put them in contact with those that the Jews thought were unworthy, then they would be designated as sinners by the Jews. And then there's the sinners. Now, sinners certainly in the Bible are typically immoral people, but that's not exactly who the Pharisees and scribes have in mind when they would look at these people as sinners. These sinners are individuals that would not be the reputable people. They would not be the people that somebody who was a Jew would want to have anything to do with. And so as you look at these sinners, they are the ones who have been outcasts from the synagogues. And here is Jesus who is sitting down with them. And in the midst of that, he says, look, you need to understand, I did not come to call the righteous but sinners. Well, who are the righteous? The righteous are the respectable. They are the ones that are the middle class, the well-adjusted, the ones that uh, we would want to be around. The sinners are the outcasts. They're the spiritual misfits. We know this because when, we, when Jesus uses this term sinners, the Pharisees are sinners too. They are also falling short of the glory of God, but they don't see it. But they can look at others and they could see how they were falling short, and especially the tax collectors and the sinners. And Jesus says, those who can see and understand their condition as they are, I came to call them because I think they'll listen to me. Those who believe that they've got it all right and that they're where they need to be, they're not going to pay attention to my message. I want you to think about how the scriptures tell us this and not our reaction ought to be. I think on, on one level we get that. Because intellectually, we understand that we're all sinners and we can even quote the passages. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and verse 10. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23. Can a man say, I'm pure from my sin? Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 9. There's not a just person upon earth that does good and does not sin. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 and verse 20. And so we're thankful to know that Jesus came for the sinners. But it also challenges us. It's not so warm and fuzzy when we think about who it is that we should be trying to introduce to Jesus. It's It's the outcasts. It's the spiritual misfits that need him and that will respond to him. But it's also something that encourages us because we understand if we truly look into our lives, as the Pharisees ought to have, that we also are outcasts. We're spiritual misfits. I'm encouraged by what Jesus is saying. He says, I came to call the sinners. A little later in the book of Matthew, Jesus is going to say, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus calls us into spiritual rest. He calls us into spiritual education. He calls us into spiritual partnership with Him. And as we look at the fact that Jesus calls us to Himself, He is calling us into a relationship. He wants us to have part with Him. It's why He came to this earth. He came to earth so that we could understand the Father. He came so that He could experientially go through what we go through. So that we could build that relationship. Jesus came to call The sinners. He came to be my master, but he also came to be my friend. If Jesus is your friend, you don't have to worry about your enemies. If Jesus is your friend, you have an unparalleled relationship because your friend is also your savior. He's your king. He's your judge. He is your flawless role model. He is your perfect teacher. And if Jesus is your friend, you have joy now and you have hope for tomorrow. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's sitting down at the table of fellowship with those that everybody else would say, you're no good, I want nothing to do with you. Maybe you don't find yourself there, but at some point you will. Maybe you felt that way about yourself for a long time, but however low you feel, Jesus says, I came to call you. Why did my Savior come to earth? May I third suggest that he says, I came to bring a sword. That's a completely different kind of a thought, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 10 and verse 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I came to set a man at variance with his father and a daughter with her mother and a daughter-in-law with her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies shall be those of his own household. In the context here in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus is telling us that what it means to be disciples, to be students in Jesus' classroom. And what he says to us is that to be students in his classroom, classroom, we need to know our place. Verse 24 and 25, we're followers. We also need to find our courage. Who or what are we going to be afraid of? Verse 26 through 28. We need to, to, to trust our father, verse 29 through 31, and not worry. We need to confess our Savior, verse 32 and 33. And then he says we need to prioritize our relationships, verse 34 through 36. And that's why he follows it up by saying, If anyone loves, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He is saying, Here's what I have come to this earth to do I have come to separate the believer and the unbeliever. He is not saying, I have come to make you turn your back on your family. I have not come to be a home wrecker. What he is saying is that I have come with a message. It is a distinct message. And here's what's going to happen with that message that I bring. Some are going to believe it and some are not going to believe it. Some are going to follow it and some are going to resist me so much that anybody who follows me, they're going to resist you too. Your parents may not agree with your decision to follow Christ. Your children may not a- agree with that. Your siblings. But here's the question. What are you going to do if you're trying to follow him and they don't want you to do that? There's a decision that comes in our life where we're going to have to stand with him and not against him. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus is going to say, I'll never forget the moment several years ago when I was sitting in a hut with a woman in Ling Dai, Cambodia. She had not long ago obeyed the gospel And she was able to stay in her hut during the daytime. But every night, her husband kicked her out and she had to sleep in a ditch nearby. Not only that, he beat her each and every day. He told her that he was no longer going to support her. And if she was going to eat, she had to go forage for herself in the jungle. And you know, as I looked face to face with this woman, it's the first time I'd ever seen anybody who so visibly was being subjected to what Jesus could happen in Matthew chapter 10. What did this humble, soft-spoken woman do to deserve such treatment? She became a Christian. You walk through the book of Acts and you keep coming across the word persecution. People are paying for their faith. It disturbs me that throughout the ages, people have hidden behind their holy wars by saying that they're doing this in the name of Jesus, but it's in the name of greed and dominion. What Jesus is saying is, I have a sword and that sword cuts right down the middle. It separates the believers and the unbelievers. And it's why I came into this earth. There are those who are looking for me and what I have to offer. And there are those that are not. I came to bring a sword. But then he says, number four, I came eating and drinking. Matthew chapter 11, verse 18 and 19. In the context, there's a dissatisfaction among the religious people. They say of John the Baptist, who, who did not come eating and drinking, he has a demon and they say of the son of man, he comes eating and drinking, that he is a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified of her deeds. There's an interesting illustration we don't have time to go into, but the idea is, is that you have one group of children who are calling to another group of children. And Jesus and John are that first group. And they're calling those other children, the scribes and the Pharisees, and what they're saying is they're calling them into their message but they don't want any part of that. They're not interested. What they would rather do is they would rather criticize. And what Jesus says is wisdom is justified of her children. That's fair of the scribes and the Pharisees. He says, you know that they're not doing right. Just look at their deeds. You can understand that they're not upholding the will of God. But look at my deeds. Don't believe me, he says in John, because of what I say. Look at the works. If you don't believe me because of me, look at the works. They prove who I am. You know, it can happen in our lives. So often we can be quick to malign godly elders or hardworking Christians. And if you're those people, maybe you second guess yourself and you want to give up. But what Jesus is saying is what George Bailey used to say all the time. And that is, what does the moon do when the little dogs keep barking at it? It just keeps shining. He says, you keep doing what's right and you follow what I say. But there's more to it than this. Jesus is saying, examine why I came. I came to, to be around those people that others would say are not the right kind of folks. They're the people who would be humbly submissive to my will. He came to make connection. And to do so, Jesus sat down at, at tables of fellowship. He laughed, he fished, he cleansed temples, he taught, and he formed connections He came to meet the spiritual and the social needs of humanity. And you know how he ultimately does that? He does that through the church that he promises that he's going to build. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, an institution that was in the mind of God from out all of eternity. There are so many things that might draw us away from the body of of the, the Son of God. But what he is saying is, I've come to give a way for you to have those needs met. We need each other. Jesus came to give us the church as a way for us to function and to be and exist. And Wisdom is justified of our children. I think about those who have been added to the body of Christ and how not only have we tried to show them something that they need in their life, but by their very being in the body of Christ, they have helped us. We are stronger. We are better because of them. And that's all because of why Jesus came to earth. But then finally, Jesus came to earth Serve. He's talking about greatness in the kingdom in Matthew chapter 20. And in verse 28, he said, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus is pointing to his mission. He knew why he was here and who he was. And that mission is made clear in the Gospel of Matthew throughout when he says, This is the state or condition that I have come to be in. You look at the most lucrative companies in the world and you look at their mission statement. They're not complicated. I'm not uh, endorsing or condemning Facebook, but they've got a great mission statement. It's to bring the people of the world closer together. Or how about Google? Google's mission statement is to take all the information in the world and make it universally accessible and useful. Jesus' mission is not complicated, but it's selfless. He says, I came to this earth not for myself, but for you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God thought it not a thing to be grasped, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took on him the form of a servant and was found in the form of a man. Being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus says, God doesn't measure greatness the way we do. The greatest person in his kingdom is very likely that quiet, humble, behind-the-scenes disciple who is serving him. We ought to ask, how can I be great? How can I be great as as a parent? How can I be great as an employee in every place where I find myself? In greatness, Jesus says, comes through being able and willing to serve. And Jesus says, I came to serve. He says that several times in the book of Matthew. This is the fourth time since Matthew 17 that he uses that word. But here he says, I came to be a ransom. This is the first time he mentions the reason. He came to pay the price we couldn't pay, so that we could have what only He could give. You know, I said there's hundreds of times in which the word uh, translated "come" is found in the New Testament. There are other places in the Gospel where you'll find that. Jesus says in Mark one in verse 38, "I came to preach the gospel." In Luke 12 and verse 49, he says, I came to bring fire on the earth, to bring judgment to those who do not believe. Uh, Luke chapter 12 and verse 49, I came that those who don't see might see. John chapter 9 and verse 36, he says, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. John 10 and verse 10, I came to save the world. John chapter 12 and verse 47, but really when you step back and you look at all of those, they come into the same categories. He says, I have come. I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets and in so doing be a a perfect sacrifice to provide for you what you need but can't provide for yourself. He says, I have come to call sinners no matter how high or low you think of yourself you're a sinner and you need what only I can give. I've come to bring a sword to find out are you willing to follow me or not? I've also come eating and drinking to provide social and spiritual needs to have fellowship with you and I have come To serve by giving myself a ransom for many. And to do this, Jesus came in the robe of flesh. Jesus willingly came and he suffered through temptation. He experienced hunger, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. He experienced fatigue, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 24. Jesus experienced the feelings of passion, John chapter 2 and verse 17. He understood the feelings of gladness and sadness, and like us, sometimes very close together, John chapter 11, verse 15 and 35. He knew what it meant to be thirsty, John chapter 19 and verse 28. He was tempted in all points like we are, Hebrews 4 and verse 15. Why did my Savior come to earth? He came to experience as God humanity. So as human beings, we could be children of God. A little history lesson as we close. 1809, there were so many in the the soldiers of Napoleon Bonaparte's army who were, were fervently obeying his commands as he was leading France to conquer the world. But in 1809, that same year, it was the year that Charles Darwin and Louis Braille and Felix Mendelssohn and Edgar Allan Poe and Abraham Lincoln were born. But you know, in 1809, nobody was thinking about the babies. They were thinking about the battles. But what battles in 1809 were so important that they were more important than the babies who were born in 1809? When Jesus was born, the Roman Empire was at its zenith in its height. It looked like an institution that would never fall or fail. But by the time the Roman Empire crumbled, that baby who was dependent in Mary's arms, had become a man, a man who calmed the seas and healed the sick and raised the dead. And that man had become a Savior who died on the cross for our sins. And that Savior had become a King who wants to conquer the most valuable territory of all, and that's the human heart and the human soul. Why did my Savior come to earth? Well, we've said all that to say this. Because He loves me so. And He loves you so. He wants you to be His, to follow Him. In Matthew 11:28, 28, He says, I'll give you rest if you come to me. I'll bear that yoke that I call you to bear with me. This morning, maybe you're ready to make that decision to make Jesus your Savior and your Lord. I want to encourage you, if you've not yet responded to the grace of Christ and made the great decision to become a child of God, Scripture makes it easy for us to understand if you're ready to act on your faith that Jesus is the Son of God, to repent of sins and to be baptized, to have those sins washed away, we're prepared to help you. We're prepared to help you at this time. We're prepared to help you any time, day or night. We had two who made that decision this past week. But there's always room for more in the kingdom of God. It's why He came to this earth. And maybe it is that you find yourself as a child of God, having lost sight of your purpose. You know that he's clarified that for you and he wants you alongside of him bearing that burden that he came for us to bear. Maybe you need to make a change in your life and we can help you. We'd love nothing more. If this is your invitation, won't you come as together we stand and sing.